Welcome to the Lulu Logic Podcast. I'm Nick Lewis. I'm your host. Man, another great episode today. We got into some great topics from Major League Baseball now seeing the Negro Leagues as a pro league and bringing in their stats into their stat books. Wow, a lot of things will change. We talk about that. We talk about the life from the lens of a referee. Talk about so many things in this episode. It was just great to have this conversation. It was great to be able to dive into some of these topics. And I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Without further ado, this is the Lulu Logic Podcast. Today's guest is from Vienna, Virginia, and is a Pulitzer Prize nominated beat writer and author. He has wrote over 300 cover stories at USA Today. And as, as a corporate leadership reporter in the money section, he has written at the bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America, the 13th greatest baseball novel of all time. <laughs> has his master's in business. Welcome to the show, Dale Jones. Thank you, Nick. I How you doing? Being here. I'm doing good. Doing good. You know, you look like a referee. I feel like it, oh. I feel like I feel like you give a lot of technicals out. <laughs> well, I need the rep too. <laughs> yeah, I try not to. Yeah, in fact, I did I did some research on umpiring back in the 1880s, and uh, back then they didn't have the power to eject uh, managers and players, but they had the power to find them. Uh, but because the the owners of the teams liked the the fighting and stuff with the umpires that they the owners paid the fines and then, so therefore the umpires were just uh, uh dead meat because everybody came after them even though the umpire could find them if they did that's crazy yeah to think back then like i couldn't find you but i can't throw you out of the game <laughs> yeah i thought that was <laughs> yeah i don't know when the ejectment ejectment power came but that is a Boy, that's a survivor technique for uh, for officials. That's for sure. Do you <laughs> don't know use the, it very often, but it sure need it sometimes. Do you know what the fines were? Were we talking ten cents? Yeah, I doubt if they were much. <laughs> uh, they might have been a lot. Uh, inflation adjustment from back then. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, the players were only making probably a couple hundred dollars a month, so I imagine a five dollar fine kind of meant something to them. But I, I don't. If inflation adjustment adjusted i imagine they could be pretty steep but if the team owners are going to pay it for them anyway it, it wasn't much of a disincentive <laughs> yeah that's true that's true so how you been doing um uh, I, we've connected today actually and um how, how have you been doing i want to get to know you a little bit before we get in everything uh with the pandemic what was going on before that happened and then how's it been through that it's actually been pretty easy on me. I'm uh, I'm very fortunate because as you know, I, I I retired to write books and I do a little freelancing. The only thing that's been affected is my officiating, uh, and my you know I used to I basically used to get get up in the morning and write uh, in the morning, have lunch, and then I would go work out, which people think is crazy because I worked out after I ate. Uh, so that that was affected because I would go to the gym. Uh, and that shut down. And then, uh, and then my sports officiating, it was like at the end of March and I was just at the end of basketball season. In fact, around here, the high schools got all the way to the state championship game and then they killed the season. 
uh, with one game left. So there were two co-state championship basketball teams. You got to let them finish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they tried to draw it out, out as much as they could. And then everybody really started panicking. So they, they just nailed it down. So uh, I haven't done much of that. I'm, I've started to do some outside stuff uh, here. Basketball season is high school basketball season is starting up again. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to do that just because the, uh, you know, I'm not real afraid of the pandemic, but if there's any sport to me that would spread it, it's it basketball. would be ba basketball. Other than wrestling, I can't imagine you being in tighter quarters. And then the referee essentially has to handle the ball quite a bit. Like when you hand the ball out of bounds and on free throws and everything. So if there's a sick player out there, they handle the ball they give it to you, you handle the ball, and then you stick the whistle in your mouth. That's what I was imagine. thinking. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine. Whistle. Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you wanted to catch something, in fact, I used to worry about just getting the flu back before the pandemic during basketball season, because that was always flu season. And at halftime, I'd always wash my hands really good because I always thought that basketball of all the sports was just a, a real contagious sport uh, for the officials. And I'm sure it is for the players too, because they're, they're breathing on each other. Uh, I've been I've been getting the emails from the officials group, and they're they're going to require face mat or masks on the players, which I can't imagine playing basketball with a mask. I've tried wearing a mask, uh, and I have to wear glasses to see, and my glasses fog up. So, uh, you know, I can either I can either not see with with a mask on or or not, you know, so I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't wear a mask. I, I don't think they're requiring the officials to wear a mask while they're officiating. You have to put, it's probably like the NFL games you've been watching. They, the officials kind of put the mask on when they go talk to somebody. And I think that's the way they're doing it with the officials because they got to go to their whistle. Although there well, are you whistles. You got keep it in your mouth the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I've seen whistles on the internet now that are handheld. They actually sound like a, a whistle, but you push it with your fingers. So you can actually okay. you can actually wear a mask and push this thing that sounds like a whistle. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some officials that are moving to that too. Although as an official, you kind of use the volume of your whistle a lot to dictate what's going it's, on. It's almost like talking. You know, you use a low whistle, a hard whistle when you know as a, the infraction is more heavy. Uh, you use a kind of a tweet whistle when they're not stopping on the whistle. You kind of tweet, 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 tweet. And so that would be kind of hard to do with a handheld whistle. Yeah. What, what all sports do you ref? I do. My daughter was an athlete. Uh, so I kind of picked up on girls sports and basketball is uh, the association I work for does both boys and girls basketball. So I do uh, both in basketball and then I do fast pitch softball. My daughter was a, a catcher uh, in fast pitch softball. And then she did kind of field hockey was kind of her fun sport. And so I took that up too. I used to watch her games having no idea what the, all the whistles were about in that game. And so I took it up and learned the rules of it. And uh, it's, actually, it's actually a good game. And it's, it's, it's a game that's improving because it's fairly new. I, I don't know if it's played where you are. It's becoming a real East Coast, big East Coast girls sport. They play it, men play it in, uh, in Europe and in India. Yep. And the men's game is like excellent and fast. Uh, and the girls game is getting that way too, because each year they're improving, you know, I can really see the improvement in the players as they come up from uh, playing youth sports for the first time in field hockey. And they also 
moved. They've moved to all turf fields uh, around here. So when you play field hockey and move from gra grass to artificial turf, the speed of the ball just picked up enormously and they just whack the ball, you know, uh, 70 yards down the field. And so that causes the official to have to run a little bit more because the ball is just like moving and moving fast. So the game has really improved. How many people on the, on the field? For a field hockey? Yes. It's 11. It's 11, uh, 11. It's 10 and a goalie. Yeah. Okay. So just like soccer. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's a lot like soccer, except there's no offsides. There's no offsides in field hockey. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Now, when it comes to getting in shape, you say you work out. Do you change your workout patterns depending on the sport you're, you're reffing, or is it pretty much the same all year round? It's pretty much the same. I try to pick up a little bit on my running before basketball. Basketball requires a lot more running. It's kind of nice because field hockey requires some running, and that season comes before basketball, so I kind of like edge into my running. I'm actually at the age now where uh, a season ago in basketball, I pulled my ham uh, hamstring. I was doing actually a doubleheader basketball game, and uh, and right toward the end of the first half of uh, the second half of the first game, it was the game was almost over. I pulled my hamstring, uh, not my hamstring, my calf. I'd never pulled my mm. my calf muscle. My calf muscle went so bad that there was about 30 seconds left in the half and I could not move. My partner was like looking at me like, what are you doing? I was like standing in the middle of the floor and the players were like running around me and I could not, I could not move. And I had to, after the, after the half was over, I had to limp off and, and fortunately the officials for the next game uh, were coming in early and somebody filled in for me because I was, I was just dead. So I had, I had to, I don't think I can do basketball very, very much longer just because I'm, I know I'm going to pull a muscle. Uh, but to, to answer your question, I kind of got in running shape through field hockey and I, I try to run a little bit more before basketball, but when I'm not having to run, it's kind of hard on my body. I do, I do a lot of yoga. I do a lot of, uh, a little bit of weights, not heavy weights. And I do some swimming and that's okay. kind of, uh, that's kind of what uh, I've done. And then since the pandemic, I've moved almost entirely to yoga. I found this terrific uh, yoga podcast uh, that I, it's like a 90 minute, pretty strenuous yoga class that I've been doing. Uh, and that, that's been kind of the, probably the main problem with me. I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm alone. My, my wife and I are alone quite a bit anyway, but uh, I, uh, I'm, I was able to, to handle, handle pretty much everything. I love yoga. I've been doing it. Oh, do you do yoga? No. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing it for 18 years now. I just feel oh. like it's such a great thing for the body. Oh, it does, um, yeah. I don't, one one thing about me is when I played, I didn't stretch unless I was doing yoga or was pre-practice or post-practice. Like on a day off, I wouldn't just set time aside to stretch. So I needed to do yoga in order to stretch because my body would just get so tight because I'm not stretching at any time unless it's the warm up before practice or something like that. Then I stretch. And then as the older you get, you know, then I had to start stretching to play basketball, pickup games and, and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. But, well, you're, you're a lot younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> wait, 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 wait a few more years and you know, even the stretching doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes a referee. <laughs> oh, come on. I don't, have you ever met anybody likes a referee? Well, uh, usually about half the people, every call, about half the people <laughs> like you. <Yeah. laughs> 
What's what's the most interesting part to you, and what do you like the most about repping? You know, the most the thing I like the most is when I make a call that it's you know the only time you get in trouble is on a close call anyway. But when I make a call that I am sure that I made right, but because of different angles and because of uh, partisanship and stuff, the the crowd or the coach or the players are really getting on me about the call. I actually like taking the heat on that. And, and on the other extreme, on the opposite of that is when there's a close call and people are getting on me and I'm not sure. Uh, I, made it, was right like, call? it was either so close, I don't know, or for some reason I was just slightly out of position, like in baseball or softball, tag plays and that kind of thing. It doesn't, it doesn't always matter how close you all are to the call. It's the angle of the call. And in fact, in fact, when I when I kind of think back on my calls after games, I usually think about where I, you know, if I wasn't sure if I got the call right, it's usually where I was. And uh, I'm sure I make wrong calls even when I'm in perfect condi- uh, position, but that's the only thing I can control. If I can get in the right position, I'll usually, I'll usually make the right call. And if I don't make it, there's really not much I can do. I've done what I can by being right, being in the right place. But that, that's what I like. I like the most is when I make a good call that the other people, we call it kicking a call. If you miss a call, it's kicking a call. And I just think to myself, all you people just kick that call. <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, do made up calls exist? Makeup calls? Uh, like if you ever make that, like, man, I missed that one, but that one's close, but I missed the last one. So I'm gonna give it to him. Yeah. Maybe, maybe for beginner beginning officials do that, but they soon learn that all that does is dig you deeper in a hole. Cause if you miss a call <laughs> and everybody's mad and then you intentionally miss a call to make up for the bad call, then you got the other side mad. And you've also started to look like you're a really bad official because everybody uh, on the court or on the field can see that you missed, you know, not the, not only the first one, but the second one. So all you do, I think is dig yourself deeper. If you, yeah. if you try to do makeup calls, you just have to accept that you missed a call and then try to get all the, all the other ones right from there. then on. I was just thinking about it. Like I never, as long as I played sports, I played soccer, baseball, basketball, football, all kinds of sports but I've never thought about the skill level it takes to be a ref. And until you start talking about being in the perfect position, right? To try to work to certain spots on the court, to get in certain positions, to be able to see the best call possible. And, you know, we were talking earlier today about cameraman, like you gotta be trained to fall back on your training to understand where the camera, where you're looking at. Yeah. As an official, you have to be trained too to where you're looking at. That's exactly it, it right. It might be easy to look somewhere else or to, you can't watch the play. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. In fact, the angle is probably the most important thing about any type of officiating. It's, it's where you're at at the, time, at the time of the play. And that's how I explain when, when I tell people that haven't officiated how important angle is. I tell them, think about a really close play that you watched on TV in an NFL game and how you'll watch one slow motion instant replay and you'll think it's one way and you know that the official the official might have missed it or he got it right they'll show an entirely different angle 
and you're still convinced that the official got it right or wrong. And then they'll finally show the camera angle where you can actually see uh, whether the knee was down or whether they crossed the goal line or whatever. And when you finally get that angle, now the call is easy. So that's how it's like really easy to, it's really easy to explain to people who haven't officiated how important angle is because all they have to have seen is, is four or five, three, four or five different angles, slow motion angles. And that's what I wish I had really is slow motion as long as well as angle. If you had that, it would be, it would be great. The officials don't have the benefit of slow motion, but they do work to get angles. And, uh, and I'm I'm, a, I'm not a high level official, but I'm amazed at how many calls that, uh, that I think they got wrong and I'll see the replays and I'll still think they got wrong until they show the angle that is, that is just the perfect angle. And I'll say, wow, uh, you know, I'm impressed. Of course, when they get them, the, the perfect angle will show they missed it too. Yeah. It's such a split second call. You don't have really a lot of time to think about it. It's like right now. And one of the things for me is as a receiver, I was always be consistent. As long as the refs are consistent, it's almost like a strike zone. As long as you know where it's at, it might be a little high, might be a little low, might be a little outside. But as long as you're consistent through your calls, right, as long as the refs being consistent. But then you get to the end of the game in basketball and football and all sports. Some refs will swallow the whistle and let the players decide it. And some refs will make the call. Right. You seem like the type of guy that wants to make that call. Like you said, you like the pressure. You seem like the guy that's like, hey, if you foul, it's a foul. No matter if it's the last right. second of the game or the first second of the game. Yeah. On good nights, I, I hope that that's the way I am because it, it really is important to, to, make, to make the, I mean, it, take, it takes a little bit of courage. I think that's what it is, uh, officials that swallow the whistle. It's kind of a lack of courage because to blow some, to, to, to sound a whistle that may decide a game, uh, especially if you think it, it's close enough where you might've got it wrong. I think, I think the slow motion replay and the challenges have actually probably hurt. Well, I think it's probably improved that a little bit because instead of the official thinking, you know, if I make this call and you know, it goes against the home crowd, they're gonna boo the crud out of me. I don't think they're worried so much this is at the high level televised yep. games. I don't think they're as worried so much about that as they used to be. They're more worried about all the replays that are going to be shown on ESPN for the next week and, and how embarrassed they're going to be if they just replay and replay something that they got wrong. And so I, I think it's probably actually helped that they're not worried so much about the reaction of the crowd and the players and the coaches. They're more worried about getting the call wrong because of all the television replays that are going to be coming up if they got it wrong. The only thing that I, I don't like about the basketball replay system is they can't correct the call, right? If it's the end of a game and let's say the ball's out on me, but a guy hit my arm that was a foul that didn't get called and the ball went off on me, they still have to say, well, it went off on you. It's the other team's ball. Even if you don't call the foul, I still think the refs should be able to make the call right. If he can judge and say, well, the reason he lost control of the ball was because of the foul. Now, we don't have to call a foul, 
but we should be able to make the call right because that's what instant replays for is to right the wrong or right the situation at the end of a game. Yeah, and I, yeah, it does. And I think more and more officiating is going to be done by machine. They're already testing. Uh, I, I don't know why the strike zone in baseball, if they're accurate, you know, they show they show whether the ball was a strike every on every pitch. They can show that. And if those if those machines are accurate, then I don't know why there's a human being back there uh, trying to see whether that that ball was within one sixteenth of an inch of the plate or not uh, when a machine can do it for them. So I, I think this, I think the plate umpire is, is on there is on his way out fairly quickly and wherever they can put machines. The only trouble with replay is the delay in the game, yeah. you know, and uh, I, I thought, you know, to avoid the delay in the game, I, I thought maybe they should require before a coach actually can check before a coach can challenge a play, they have to do it before they watch the replay. You know, if they if they want to watch it with their naked eye and think that the official blew it and challenge it, that's one thing. If they have the benefit of uh, watching this slow motion replay and challenge, it slows down the game. It makes the official work look worse because they get challenged only on the calls they miss. I bet if they challenged calls that the coach could see only with the naked eye, the official would get a large percentage of those yeah. right. But, uh, but, you know, it's kind of a balancing act. Like you said, you want to get the call right, especially if it's an important professional game. I mean, people's livelihoods are on the line here. So get it right. And therefore, you should use replay as much as possible. But then you slow the game down. They can figure out how to do it quicker. I think uh, that's probably where it's headed. Yeah, baseball with the – I know you talk about the plate and they show the strike zone and everything. That – that would be does make sense to to have it automated, but there's just something that's so much better about the human element of error in sports, right? It, yeah. it comes back to bite you sometimes, but uh, sometimes it's in your favor. But that's the human element. I think that's even when making plays, sometimes you make the play, sometimes you don't. Right? We shouldn't expect refs to be perfect if if a coach and a player can't be perfect. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of the other, the other either we, it's kind of the balancing act. Do you want the human element or do you want to get the call perfect? You know, yeah. right. So, yeah, it's, it is, it is a dilemma. I kind of like the human aspect too, but, uh, but you know, there ha have been some blown calls that are very important. I, I think of that one, I can't remember who it was. Somebody threw a, threw a perfect game until the last pitch. And the uh, and the base umpire called somebody safe at first. It was clearly out. That was like about five years ago, I think. Yeah, uh, it, it ruined a perfect game for a pitcher, and and that and maybe it was further back because they didn't have the re, the the replay, the, replay, the, the challenge. That yeah. I think that's when they brought the challenge in was after that season, uh, for that very reason because he he took away a perfect game from from a pitcher that and he and it wasn't even that close of a play. He just kind of like really choked on it. And probably because it was a perfect game and this was the last out of the game. And he was probably thinking, he was probably, instead of looking at the call, he was probably thinking, wow, I've really got to get this right because this is the this is the last play of the game. And that's what he was thinking instead of thinking about just doing a job. Foot, the foot in the glove when you're calling first base as an umpire, you're watching the foot hit the base and you're listening for the ball to hit the glove. That's how they call that. That's how they call first base. It's the most accurate way to do it. And so if you're not doing that, if you're not like focusing on the foot and listening for the ball hitting the glove, 
those bang bang plays you you miss quite a bit they're actually pretty easy to get unless they're extremely close if if you do it if you use that system yeah didn't know that that's awesome what what's your sports background like growing up you grew up in virginia uh no i'm i'm from rocky mountain west is where i grew okay. up okay uh, yeah, I uh, was born in Utah. I moved from there when I was three. Lived in my father worked for the Forest Service. So he got transferred around. Lived in Cody, Wyoming. Wow. Lived in lived in uh, Denver, Colorado. Lived in Durango, that. Colorado, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, and then when I started, when I that was all in my childhood and high school years. And then, and then my first, uh, I was actually a sports writer coming out of. I got a journalism degree from the University of New Mexico. And uh, my first job was at a small town newspaper in Texas, San Angelo, Texas. I, don't I know, know where San Angelo is. San yeah. Angelo is right in the tornado uh, belt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. In the summer, you just hear sirens all the time and wonder if you should take them seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so that I used to see that tornadoes was... out of my back window in Fort Worth. <laughs> so I, started, you know, I did a small town sports riding gig there, and I did one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then I, I kind of figured that if I wanted to get to a major newspaper, it's kind of like I went into, uh, I got a business degree and I went into business reporting because it's kind of like being a catcher in baseball. The fastest way to the major leagues in baseball, they say, is to be a catcher. The fastest way to a major newspaper is to be a business writer. So I, okay. and I, I, I enjoyed business. Uh, it wasn't like I was like bored with the job. Uh, but I kind of switched for that reason because I didn't want to work in small towns my whole life. Awesome. Which which small town did you like the most growing up when you were moving to from Utah to Cody, Wyoming, Denver, and I guess Denver's not small. Durango. Yeah, and- Denver was the biggest city I lived in until I moved yeah. to here. I live outside of Washington D.C. now. Uh, they're all they're all beautiful. I was a child, so uh, Cody, Wyoming, is a small town. It's uh, I remember I was only, I think I moved there when I was six, but I still remember the rodeo there. Uh, you could yeah. basically walk to the rodeo grounds. Durango, Colorado was nice when I lived there. It's it's become more of a, I've been back since. It's more of a tourist town. It's a big ski uh, ski town. Okay. Uh, kind of like Aspen, Colorado now. So it's uh, it, it it's touristy now, but it's, it's a beautiful city as well, or town as well. I've I used to drive through most of that when I went, I used to drive to Calgary from Texas every year. And, you know, I would either go through like Albuquerque up and you go into, uh, I'd stay in Denver and then I would stay, drive through uh, Colorado and Wyoming. Wow. And stay in, and stay in Billings, Montana, then drive into Calgary the next day or, or we'd go, or I'd go just Oklahoma city up to Kansas and then Kansas across across Kansas into Colorado. So either way, but uh, yeah, it was always good going up because it was the summer, but coming back was the issue <laughs> in December. And uh, one time I hit 18 inches of snow, I got snowed into Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yeah, we got yeah. snowed in there and we got That's stuck big... in, yeah. We made it to Denver the next day and then we we were there for like four or five days. Yeah. I actually got to see Iverson's debut for the Nuggets. Ninety dollar oh, yeah. floor seats. Wow. Yeah, because it was so much snow. Oh, well, that that turned out to be a good snowstorm. <laughs> yeah. So you you got your business degree. Um, where'd you get your business degree from? 
Uh, I started out, I was working at the time in El Paso, Texas. Uh, and so I was doing it kind of while I was working. And so I started it there. And then while I was, well, I hadn't quite completed it and I got the job at USA Today. Mm -hmm. So I had to move out to Washington and I only needed, I think, three classes. And so I begged uh, University of Texas El Paso to let me actually take the classes at George Washington University in Washington, DC, and they approved it. So I took my last three classes at uh, George Washington University and then wrote my thesis uh, uh, out here as well. So uh, my degree is actually from uh, UTEP, the University okay. of Texas El Paso, and I completed it at George Washington University. That's awesome. And you got the job for USA Today. How was that feeling, just being able to go to such a big publication like that? Yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, in fact, it was, when I was there, it was a very respected newspaper. This was before internet and, and everything. And uh, USA Today just had a great reputation among readers. A lot of, a lot of journalists kind of put it down as kind of lowbrow short stories that didn't jump off the page and stuff, but readers just took to it. So when I would, when I would make phone calls to try to get interviews, it was like always like really easy to get people on the phone because they just love being in USA Today. And I know the sports, I knew quite a few of the sports writers and they felt the same way because USA Today really built a reputation as being a sports, you know, you, you would read your hometown paper for the hometown sports, but if you wanted to read about and get late scores, uh, this was before the internet, you know, you woke up and you got the newspaper and you were disappointed because there was a West Coast game that didn't make it into the newspaper because of the deadline. USA Today used to really build its reputation on really holding its deadline back, trying to get those late games in. So sports, the sports page I know was very well read and, and liked. Uh, now, now everybody just gets their scores on the internet. It doesn't matter. And the same thing with uh, business reporting. I can remember when uh, business sections were like a half the business section was stock tables. You know, you'd open up the business page and then the second half of the business section would be just a long list of agate of every stock on the New York Stock Exchange. And that's how the people would find out what their stocks did uh, the day before and Newspapers have just entirely eliminated that as well because everybody just looks up their stocks on the internet now. Yeah, everything's so right now so at the different. fingertips. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's so different. You got any business advice for everybody through through the pandemic? <laughs> I'm <laughs> well, pretty sure you talk to enough people. <laughs> well, I tell everybody if you want if you want financial advice, you get what you pay for. <laughs> That's what. That's a, what I when I watch uh, business TV, I'm always amazed at how the experts can can tell you like exactly why the stock market went up today or went down today, but they never seem to be able to tell you the day before if it's going to go up or down. But after it's all over, they can tell you exactly why, you know, as if they knew ahead of time. Well, why didn't you tell me yesterday that it was going to go up or down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's. You know, it's such a crazy world like we're, we're living in right now with, um, you know, you can see this is a big monopolizing time for the bigger companies, right? They're going to be able to swoop in and, and buy out a lot of these small franchises and small guys and, and ladies that have started businesses on a smaller scale because of um, 
COVID and the restrictions and everything like that. So, you know, I just hope that people can rebuild and, and get it back. Yeah, it really has been a small business uh, recession. I mean, the the big companies, especially the tech companies, the the Microsofts and the and the Facebooks and Amazon, you know, they've they've actually been they've actually like their profits have gone up due to the pandemic. Uh, but the people that are suffering, you know, you think about all the restaurants, both the workers and the restaurant owners. But I just and small businesses everywhere. It's been really a small business, and I think uh, a low uh, people on the low income scale recession. I think people that have good incomes, for the most part, have weathered pretty well. But it's the people that work the jobs where they have to be out in the public, the, the service industry, the travel industry, all those people that work those jobs that just took a nosedive. Uh, so it's been it's been kind of a lopsided. You know, everybody, everybody kept trying to talk about getting the getting uh, income disparity balanced out. That's been kind of a big issue. And the pandemic has done more to harm that than uh, I think any policy could have. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand that a lot of those restaurant workers or all the restaurant workers pretty much, they make like two dollars and seventy five cents an hour. And right, if they're working, they, yeah, yeah, they're working and they make their tips. Right. Right. Uh, here in Canada, they make minimum wage in their tips. So yeah. it's a little different because you're looking at people that they could work an eight hour shift and they're only making twenty dollars. Yeah. Their tips are very important. But now. So and when you only have half the restaurant open or a third of the restaurant open or now they're closing down restaurants and closing down things, it makes it incredibly hard for these people that that have, you know, really carried the life flow. Yeah, yeah, it's all take, bad. Yeah, it's takeout too. You know, you don't tip somebody when you go when you drop by a restaurant and pick up something for a takeout. You're not you're not usually not leaving a tip for that. Yeah, and that's that's very bad. Now your your background in sports. Um, growing up, were you heavily into sports? Was it something? Uh, I noticed baseball is something that you you wrote about and you talk about. What was it about baseball and, and were there other sports? Yeah, the base, you know, the baseball was probably because of my umpiring. I, I, I'm right. I write, I write about in the, in my novel, I write about baseball because it was from the umpire's point of view. I wasn't, you know, I think I'm a decent athlete, but I was small. My son's the same way. Uh, he was like really good in, in youth football. And then when he hit high school, all of a sudden he had to, in youth football, they kind of like categorize you by both age and size. And so he was small. And so he was a little older playing against larger kids, but they were younger. So he had kind of a, a maturity advantage. And that, but once you hit high school, then all of a sudden you're playing football against the same age, only people that are a lot larger. And I, I that was kind of the same, same way with me. And I became a gymnast. Uh, I went to uh, high school in Albuquerque and my gymnastics team uh, finished, uh, first in the state, awesome. uh, my junior and senior year. So that, that's what I did, which is probably why I take to yoga. Now it's, uh, the, the stretching, it feels good. I'm, I'm not that flexible, but I did play uh, little league baseball. And this was back in the time before video cameras, but my grandmother had a, had a camera that actually took film 
uh, uh, movies with a with a camera, the home camera with movies, mm -hmm. and she and she gave that to my father. So my father took this camera, and, and the, the film was like really expensive and really expensive to develop. So he would sit at my little league games, and he would start the camera when I was at bat, right when the pitcher was about to deliver the ball, so that he was only running the camera when I, you know, was supposed to hit the home run. And so he's got, we've got these like home videos of me taking swing after swing after swing after <laughs> swing, you know, that, because he would stop the camera as soon as I swung and missed. And so I don't think he ever caught me catching the ball, but he's got like, he's, he's got like these, you know, I ought to put it up on, uh, on YouTube. It'd probably go viral with the, just like a hundred swings a minute. It was basically, I know I, I took a hundred swings a minute and missed every one. <laughs> So that, that's how good I was in baseball. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I liked baseball growing up until um, I got hit with a pitch as a freshman, and I pretty much said I'm done with baseball. I got hit pretty hard. I was like, no, oh, really? never again. I don't so want to play it, anymore. And so you stayed with football. Huh? <laughs> football and so basketball. <laughs> Football's a lot safer than baseball. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, my dad doesn't get it. He's always asking me. He's like, why would you – why is it okay to get hit by a linebacker uh, going across the middle or a 300 pound D lineman, but you're scared of a little baseball? I'm like, one, I'm not scared of a baseball. The baseball targets one area of the body and, and, it, and it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It leaves the marks of a seam on. I've been hit in the hand with just a, with just a, a softball, a, a fast pitch softball. Those pitchers can pitch up to like 70, mm. uh, which which front they're closer, they're closer to the plate. So for the batter, it's almost like a 90 mile an hour fast baseball fastball. It doesn't, when it hits you, it's only going 70, but it a 70 mile an hour pitch to get hit with. I've been hit by some of them and they hurt. They leave, they leave the seam marks on your hand. You get hit in the hand with the ball and you got the seams of the softball showing on your hand. Yeah, that sucks. And catchers always take, I mean, catchers have their gear on, but they, the ball always seems to find a way underneath their gear uh, yep. where they can, where they get hit someplace that for some reason wasn't protected. I'm speaking, behind catchers all day. Go ahead. I was going to say, speaking of catcher's gear, um, you brought to my attention today about the first black baseball player. Well, not the first. There was one baseball player before him, but he passed as white because the slave master was his father and the, but he was the last person, right? Fleetwood. Yeah. He was uh, be, before, I mean, the Jackie, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 47, 47. 47. Yeah. And uh, before that, there wasn't a black major league player going back until 1884. And in 1884, uh, for the Toledo uh, stock, Blue Jays or Stockings. I can't remember what their nickname was. It was Toledo. The, the newspapers just called them by their city. They were the Toledos in the newspaper reports. But Moses Fleetwood Walker played one season in 1884, and uh, he was an average hitter. Uh, but from, I read his biography, biography, and from what I read, he was just a great catcher. And uh, and he was he played at, the, at a time when... Uh, Actually, black players were just never banned at that time. It's just that there was kind of this gentleman's agreement among the owners that they wouldn't sign black players. So they never, 
they never said we banned black players. It's just all of a sudden there weren't any being signed. And Fleetwood Walker was one that uh, played one season and didn't get signed. And w one player that was that's been blamed for that, who is who also appears in my novel, is is a player named Cap Anson. He was one of the great white players back from the very beginning in professional baseball. He's one of the probably one of the earliest uh, Hall of Famers. Fam yeah, he was a Hall of Famer, but he was like a 1870s, 1880s player, and he's been accused of of being a racist and and a lot of, there's kind of a debate about how much power he had over the team owners uh banning blacks but you know if he was a if he if he definitely was a racist and didn't want black players around he was he was a good enough player and a good enough coach uh, in the game to have an influence on that so a lot of people think that uh if he wasn't outright to blame for it he was a major player in banning so i i've made him in my novel you know, they're all they're all real people in real life, but they're kind of fictionalized versions of themselves in my novel. And I have Casey, who is never a real player. And I have Fleet Moses Fleetwood Walker. Uh, the strikeout of Casey, the poem was written in 1888. So Moses Fleetwood Walker played in 1884, never played Major League Baseball again. And I, ha I had him in my novel sneaking back into the game uh, and and claiming he didn't know how to speak English, he only knew how to speak Spanish and claiming he was from Mexico. And, uh, and so I had him kind of like going incognito in my book as, as a black player who was uh, playing, it wasn't actually Major League Baseball, this was California uh, League Baseball, which a lot of people considered as good as Major League Baseball, but back then there were only trains. And so all the Major League teams were in the East Coast and the Midwest because you couldn't travel, you couldn't travel between cities to California. Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of great players playing California ball as well. One of the things that I found very fascinating was they didn't have catcher's mitts. So they <laughs> no. didn't have gloves. That's right. So you just caught the ball without a mitt. They did. Yeah. In fact, uh, he catch the, he catches in my book, he's catching barehanded, which, uh, just, just kind of blows me <laughs> blows me away how they did that a lot a lot of catchers uh uh early in the game would would stay back they would back, basically stay back away from the plate uh probably try try to stop the ball on the bounce unless there was a runner on base once there was a runner on base now they couldn't just let the ball bounce by them they now had to get up to the plate and that's when they, they had to be tough i imagine catchers really liked it when runners weren't on base back then because they imagine could, they, like they, foul tips yeah anything yeah. you would just let the ball the pitch go to the backstop if you didn't have a runner on base in fact uh uh i don't know you know if, if there wasn't an umpire behind the catcher the catcher would let the ball go by <laughs> yeah i mean there, there's no harm in letting the ball go by if nobody's on base <laughs> exactly and and when when we look at the the whole racist angle from cap anson um it's 17 years post-slavery Right. And I think even slavery went into 71 uh, in the South because nobody got the memo <laughs> that it was uh, that it was done. Right. In, in the South. Right. So it went, you know, I think four years extra until June 19th, I believe. Um, so when we look at that and, and you have guys that come from a plantation or born on a plantation. And. We look at Moses, he went to Michigan, 
He was playing on their baseball team, I believe, at Michigan. Oh, he played on the Oberlin uh, yeah. College team. Oberlin College, yeah. I think it's in Ohio, yeah. Yeah, he, he was actually, uh, he, he, he was raised in Pennsylvania, or yeah, Pennsylvania, just, just, just over the slave line. There was a, the river that divided the slave line. He was just over that. And he lived in, he grew up in a community of Quakers who were very anti-slavery. And uh, his father was a doctor who, who basically, he was like the first doctor in, uh, I'm saying Pennsylvania, but I think it's Ohio. I think it's Ohio. And he, he was the first black doctor in Ohio. And he actually made a pretty good living because he, there weren't dentists at that time either. And he extracted, he got to become an expert at extracting teeth. And back then people had a lot of uh, dental problems. And if you had dental problems, you basically pulled the tooth when, when it was time. And so he, and his, his mother, his father was a doctor. His mother was a midwife. And so, and he, and he actually went to college. He didn't graduate into Oberlin, played college baseball there where he met, met his wife. So he was actually a college-educated African American in 1884, which is, you know, pretty unusual. Yeah, yeah. 17 years post-slavery plays one year, um, sleeping on a park bench. You know. Yeah, and his brother on park benches. Yeah, yeah. his brother. He had a brother that played in the Negro Leagues, I think, for uh, a Pittsburgh team. But the you couldn't make you couldn't make very much money in the Negro Leagues. In fact, the Negro Leagues, they essentially played about half a season, about half as long as the major leagues so that they could get out and barnstorm and play exhibition games because that's where they actually made a living. They couldn't really make a living uh, playing it in the Negro Baseball League. Yeah, it's just, it's just so fascinating. And I know that Cap got in his contract that um, Blacks couldn't play. Right. Um, I've read that that Cap had actually put it in his contract that uh, blacks can he would not play if if blacks were playing on any other teams. And oh, I mean, oh yeah. I don't know if it was in his contract, but he did. He yeah. did actually uh, walk off or threaten to walk off uh, the field if if the opposing team had a black player. Yeah. It's it's just so crazy when you when you look at the whole system, and then today. There, the Negro League stats are now being considered as professional stats with the Major League Baseball stats. Yeah, that news just broke today. The uh, Major Leagues just announced that they're going to accept uh, Negro League. Uh, they're going to accept the Negro Leagues as Major League teams from 1940, uh, 1920 to 1947, I think, when Jackie Robinson broke in. So all the Negro Leagues during that pocket of years uh, are now all considered major league players, which I think uh, I've been doing quite a bit of research since this broke, uh, trying to find out what records were going to fall now that the statistics are allowed in. And uh, and that's one of the big things that I kept reading stories from major publications, the New York Times and... uh, and uh, NPR and stuff, and they had pretty good stories on on what was happening. But you know, it wasn't answering my question as well. What what records are going to fall? And uh, you know, they may have they may have updated the stories by now. But 
the one I found that it was, I, I wrote it down here. The one I found that uh, is a, one of these great records that people think is never going to fall. Ted Williams uh, batted 406 in 1941. And he was, the, he was the last major league player to bat over 400. And Josh Gibson in 1943, two years later, batted 449. Uh, so he just... If, uh, he will now shatter. He'll not only make it two years more recent than the last 400 hitter is. He he has now got a number that you know they say Ted Williams 406 may never get beaten. 443. You know you can you can bet the ranch that nobody is ever going to nobody bat, ever you know, ever bat 443. Bad is getting worse. <laughs> yeah. And he he had power too. They used to. The, the, the white people used to call Josh Gibson the back the black Babe Ruth, but I read that what, what really people said was that Babe Ruth was the white Josh Gibson. Yeah, I heard Josh I Gibson is he, probably the best baseball player to ever play the game. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, it would be nice to know if anybody, I don't think anybody is alive yet that is still alive that saw him play and I'm I'm sure that, you know, there may be photographs of him, but I'm sure there's no video of him. So, you know, all the, all these great players, it's like really hard to know how you, you, they've got to be great with the statistics they had, but it would sure be nice to be able to see them actually know what their swing was like. You know, I have no idea what Josh Gibson's swing even looked like. It would be nice just to see it. Yeah. I've, I've seen something on real sports with Bryant Gumble, and they were talking about the Negro league stats and, and how a guy went back and was looking at all the stats and he was working to try to get this done. And they talked about Satchel Page having so much money that he had a private plane that would fly like the all-star team around to play teams to make more money and to help guys make money. And when we look at pitchers like Satchel Page and you look at some of the greatest uh, Negro League players outside of the ones that just converted over, like Satchel Page. I believe he was well in his 40s when he went to the MLB, right? Yeah. So um, when these guys that were in their primes in the quality of baseball, they say was so good that it was almost equal to, if not better than the MLB talent. Yeah, right. No, during that I'm, time. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, that, and I had kind of a dispute with the fact that they read, they're going to add in the Negro Leagues from 1920 to when Jackie Robinson broke in. I'm kind of, I was kind of like wondering why are you cutting it off there just because Jackie Robinson was now playing major league baseball. What about the great players that were still in the Negro leagues? You're going to cut their statistics off. And, and, uh, and one, you know, I went back and forth. I'm, I'm, I'm on a Facebook uh, group with uh, that's called the Negro league baseball. And I was trying to figure some of this stuff out. And I, and I looked at Hank Aaron, I started doing some searching on Hank uh, Aaron, and he played uh, a season in 1952 and got nine home runs with a Negro League team. And if you add those nine home runs to his total, he now passes Barry Bonds as the career home run leader. And so I'm like posting on, and I'm not seeing this in any newspapers. To me, this is like that's huge news. news. Yeah. Huge news that Hank Aaron is now the career home run leader, surpassing Barry Bonds. And so I get on the uh, Negro League. And then that's when they reminded me that they're only including Negro League statistics up to 1949. 
So if Hank Aaron hit nine home runs in 1952, according to these new rules, they wouldn't be counted. So I have a feeling uh, that they're going to go back and, and add in uh, a few more of these seasons until, you know, it, it, it comes a point where the great players, black players were in the major leagues, not just one, one black player in the major leagues, but when, when the, the Negro leagues were are no longer a great league because the really good players are in the major leagues, then I can see cutting it off. But until you kind of establish that point, uh, you wouldn't think you would cut it off. I think that the Negro League All-Star team actually played an MLB All-Star game. And I think they played well over 20 or 30 times in with the Negro League team winning like 60 to 70% of those games. Is that right? I'm surprised yeah. they kept playing then. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just that. But, you know, when I think about these stats and we think about um, the Negro Leagues being like great baseball players, I mean, this doesn't discredit the, the great white baseball players either. You know, the Mickey Mantles, the, uh, the Lou Gehrig's, the, you know, the Babe Ruth's and everybody. But if you look now, the the American blacks don't play baseball anymore, really. I think they're under like 4% or something like that of the MLB. Yeah. Right now it's a, it's, it's either whites or Dominicans or, you know, foreigners than it is um, the American born players. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of speculation of why that is. I think it's baseball is not an urban game. I mean, there's not, there's not usually a lot of green space in inner cities. I don't know if that that's probably partially the reason. Uh, I, I don't know. And the, the, the Latinos do, you know, yeah, it's, it's not it's not a rich person sport because the Latinos, the some of the great Latino players have come up from playing youth ball using a card, a piece of cardboard for a glove. That's why they're such great fielders is because they fielded for so many years using a piece of cardboard for a glove that the, you know, their hands got really good. So it really, uh, it, it really isn't a, a, baseball isn't a low income sport. So it must have more to do with uh, the amount of green space, uh, city green space, I would think. I don't know, do you have any ideas of why uh, no, there aren't many black players? No, because I mean, when I just seen something about Tiger Woods and when Tiger started in the early 2000s or late 90s, how they thought it was going to take off for blacks to play golf. But we know how expensive golf is, right? Right. And everybody just can't go do it. But like you said, in baseball, it does give you the perfect opportunity. All you need is a bat and a ball. Like they in were room. playing without, they were yeah. playing in room. They right. were playing without gloves for a long time. And, and you see a lot of commercials or a lot of video footage of people playing, kids playing without gloves. Right. Um, yeah. Everybody didn't have to have a glove to to fill the ball. In fact, that makes them better fielders if they learn yeah. how to field without a glove. I would think. Yes. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. It's it's actually declined, and it's actually it's crazy how the decline happens when baseball players make more money. <laughs> right. More, more than uh, like more football than like and football. basketball. Yes. Oh, okay. Right. So if you look at football has no guaranteed contracts. Um, I believe the highest paid football player makes $34 million, $35 yeah. million, somewhere and in there. And their careers are shorter. Their careers are shorter. 
uh, higher risk of injury. That's why there's no guaranteed contracts. But then you see these baseball players like Mookie Betts and and these guys are signing $400 million deals, $300, $400 million deals, right? Um, so guys in, guys in football aren't really signing that. I mean, Pat Mahomes signed a $500 million deal, but he's only got $150 guaranteed, $150 million guaranteed. And I mean, I only say only, but still $150 million guaranteed out of 500 and something. After that guaranteed money's done, he's going to be looking for a new contract because he doesn't want to step on the field without guaranteed money. Right. So it's equivalent to when Peyton Manning, I remember when Peyton Manning, I think, was the first quarterback or the first player to sign a hundred million dollar deal in the NFL. Well, he got his guaranteed money in the first three years of that seven year deal and he signed a new deal in the fourth year. So it's not like Pat Mahomes will only see 500 million if he plays that long, but it will be over the course of two or three more contracts. Uh huh. Right. It's not going to be on this contract where Pat Mahomes makes hundred million dollars. I mean, $500 right. million dollars. Right. So that's the difference. Baseball, you know, you sign Alex Rodriguez signs that big deal with the Rangers and then he goes to New York with another big deal. Cause I think he, he made 275 million with the Rangers. Then he goes to New York and signs another two or $300 million deal. And it's just outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where baseball is getting the money. I, I guess, I mean, their, their TV contracts can't be that lucrative. It must be the fact that they play so many more games and if they get good, good gate, good attendance, then the money must be coming from there. Yeah, 81 home games compared to eight in football. Yeah. Right. So if you have a good product and you're, you're filling it up, if you can make the playoffs and make some runs, I think you can, you can survive. But we see that now in, in baseball, nobody's signing any free agent deals right now. Like baseball free agency has been underway and nobody's really signing in baseball because of, Baseball's trying to figure out, are we going to have fans? Are we not going to have fans? We can't afford to go out and sign these people without any fans or what limited fan space for some of yeah. the bigger teams. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can see why they, they would do wait and see, that's for sure. Yeah. I just, when, just thinking about this whole concept of, of baseball, because it almost is the forgotten sport until the playoffs come around then it's always entertaining. And then the world series, uh, you know, with the Dodgers winning. And I think just over the last five years, um, I think the last four or five world series champions hadn't won a world series. And I think the least one was 35 years. So it's like all these teams that hadn't won in so long are, are winning. So like Houston and Chicago and, and the Dodgers now, and I can't remember the other team, but. Yeah. I'm a Washington nationals fan. They won it. Uh, the year before this yeah so it's how do you how do you make baseball exciting again i mean they've they've quickened up the time between innings uh they're doing all these things to try to make it more entertaining um i find that the players now are hitting home runs or striking out uh the pitching's getting better there's more analytics in baseball there's um there's so much more advantages for a pitcher i believe over the hitters like how much better can you get as a hitter but pitchers are getting new pitches um instead of pitching two or three pitches they know they can pitch four or five different pitches uh so so but you know baseball is one of those games you can go to you can talk to your friend the whole game and when you hear the ball hit you kind of look and see it then you're back to talking 
Yeah, unless you catch a line drive in the side of the head, yeah, <laughs> foul ball. Yeah. <laughs> if you're behind the screen, you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but did you? Where did you find your fascination with? Because you you reference these players from the 1800s, and you reference this this poem at the bat from 1888. Where did you find your fascination with with all the historic? features of the sport of baseball yeah I, I decided to write historical novels because uh as a reporter i wanted to never interview anybody again so i would write about everybody who's been dead <laughs> so so i started out uh i wrote a book called the cremation of sam mcgee which is also about a famous poem uh that takes place it takes place in 1898 during the uh the 1898 was a big historical year. There was the Spanish-American War, and then there was the Klondike Gold Rush that happened uh, in those years. So I kind of wrote a novel, kind of based on on those two events, and it's called the Cremation of Sam McGee. And then, and then I thought, well, that was kind of fun. And I, I, I find myself, I think I'm a good writer, but I'm not as good at creating the story unless I have something to create the story around. So these are these poems kind of have a story to them, like Casey at the Bat. Uh, it was actually a news. It was actually newspaper filler back back then. Uh, you know they didn't have wire services, and if they if they didn't have a story to fill out a page, they would just have you know their reporters and stuff just like write poems or or little things to fill things at the bottom of pages, and that's what this is. Ernest there uh, wrote this thing. Probably, you know, I never heard how long it took him, but he probably wrote it in an afternoon and he and he didn't he was so ashamed and he wasn't proud of it all that he signed it Finn P-H-I-N. And for a few years, nobody even knew who wrote Casey at the Bat. And it got very famous because this actor named DeWolf Hopper, uh, one time he went out on stage and he memorized the poem before he went out on stage and he, uh, he had a terrific memory and he went out there and he recited the poem on stage and there just happened to be a baseball team in attendance uh, in New York when he recited it and they stood on their chairs and they cheered when he recited this poem and so the uh, it just turned it just became a very famous poem and I I think the reason it's famous is because of the twist at the end essentially I mean it's a well-written poem but if Casey had hit the walk-off home run as like if you never read the poem before you're kind of expecting you know, Casey took a couple of strikes and now he's going to like hit the walk off home run to win the game. And the fact that he swings and misses at the last ball, I think it's the twist at the end that kind of makes the, the, the poem kind of entertaining because it's the hometown crowd and they're just expecting him to be the hero. And uh, he turns out to be the goat. And in my novel, he really is a goat. In my novel, I make him this like really hero celebrity type person to everybody everybody just kind of worships him all the fans they just they just think he he just walks on water uh but in his private life he's like a lot of like real famous celebrities where he has kind of a dark side in his private in his private life so i kind of make him that and that's why i named the book at the bat the strikeout that shamed america it's kind of a play on the fact that it was kind of a little bit shaming that he struck out and also, it's a little bit shaming that 
everybody just looks up to this guy that probably isn't worth being looked up to this fictional uh, athletic hero. So that's kind of why I named it that. Uh, what's the feedback that you gotten back on the book? Uh, it's been, it's been very good so far. Uh, uh, the people that have read the book just, just really like it. It's on, it's moved up to Goodreads is a place where there's a lot of readers and they have a, a category where they've put down 112 baseball novels and there aren't very many, you know, I looked at the list and there aren't very many well-known baseball novels. There's probably uh, 10 or 12 so that has allowed my mind to move up uh, to, I'm, I'm at number 13 now, uh, and it probably doesn't deserve to be a much higher because the, the, the novels that are ahead of it are really good novels. And uh, I'm surprised that there's so few good uh, baseball novels or good sports novels uh, in general, because there's a lot of good movies that are made out of these novels and usually, you know, if they if they make a movie out of a novel, all the novelists say, well, gee, I'm going to I'm going to like try to recreate that. Yeah, I would think there would be more sports, good sports novels written. Uh, I mean, you look at Bull Durham and The Natural and and uh, there's just like Bull Durham. Yeah, Bull Durham's a good movie. I think it's probably my favorite. Would you uh, consider Brewster's Millions movie. a baseball movie? <laughs> I forgot all about Brewster's. That, that that's a good movie. I forgot all about it, but yeah, I don't think it was a book, but it's a it's a great story. Isn't that the one where he was trying to like spend money and it, it just kept coming back to him? Yeah, he had to spend eighty million dollars in other in in order to inherit uh, three hundred million. So and he, and he had he thirty days it. to spend it. <laughs> and every time he tried to spend money, he would like make money off of what he spent, right? Yeah, Richard yeah. Pryor was a great yeah, movie. That, it was a good movie. You know, I have to watch it again. <laughs> it's been a long time. John Candy, I believe John Candy was in there. Yeah, John Candy, Richard Pryor. Good, good old movie. Have you ever thought about getting into documentaries or or turning these into movies uh well that's where most of the baseball readership is is in nonfiction. uh for what you know readers for one thing there's not a lot first you, you start out with a small portion of people that read a lot of books that's i don't know what percentage of the population that is but it's pretty small to start with and then you take that and about 70 percent of those readers are women and so that you know a lot there's probably a, a cut of those women who like to read sports, but most of them are into romance novels and that kind of thing. So you're down to 30% of the men and men like to read, non, primarily like to read nonfiction. And if they read sports, they like to read nonfiction sports. So there's, there's, quite, a, there's quite a bit of uh, good nonfiction sports out there, uh, but not a lot of fiction sports. And that, that may be the reason why is because men primarily like nonfiction the women who like to read fiction aren't necessarily going to like sports. So maybe that's why there's not too many good, really good sports novels out there. I think John Grisham wrote Calico Joe. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a, he was a very successful writer with his uh, lawyer. You know, he wrote all those uh, lawyer novels about law and that kind of thing. And he, but he's also a baseball fan and he wrote Calico Joe. I read that it's a pretty short book. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a great book. It's an entertaining book. And then uh, Field of Dreams was actually made from, uh, sh there was a book called Shoeless Joe. Shoeless Joe, yeah. 
Pulis, Joe, and I think that's uh, the movie Field of Dreams is taken after that book. And then The Natural, that that's more of a fantasy. I like, I don't really care. I read the book too, and I really don't really care for the movie or the book that much, but I do like the premise of somebody having his career, you know, coming up his rookie year, being this player that is just going to be a star and then for some reason having his career end right there and and the fact that he comes back in his 40s and now is able to play again I can't even remember why he's recovered enough to play again in his 40s I think that premise of that is like really good yeah uh, but but the fact that you know he's knocking the lights out and running through walls and stuff it's more it's more kind of a fantasy concept i think it would make a i think it would make a good movie just written as just kind of a regular movie of somebody who gets injured or something in their rookie year and they are going to be a phenom and then just have their career ruined but so for some reason are able to come back in their 40s i think that would be a really good story who was that rick Ankiel, i believe that was the pitcher had the had the oh, yeah. elbow injury and he ended up making it back to the major league as an outfielder yeah. From pitcher yeah. to outfielder. And I think it was the first time it's ever been done. You know, they yeah. tell you your career's over and then he kind of rebuilds it from playing in the outfield. Like, yeah. how cool is that? Yeah. Like, that's cool. I, I'm waiting for the first switch pitcher. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this should be a movie. Yeah. That, that, and that's, that's the thing with you being a writer you have at your fingertips to be able to create anything that you want um is and it seems like you put it together very well what is the, what is it that you desire to do from this point forward is it write more novels is it to see if you can create short stories in in video form uh through these novels or through some of these writings or what is it that you really want to do moving forward yeah, I don't have very much of a video background, uh, so I imagine I'll continue to write. Uh, I don't have I don't have a novel I'm working on right now. I'm basically working more on marketing the books. Marketing is kind of a it can be uh, kind of a full time job. It's hard to focus if you're gonna like write a novel. You have to focus on it. And if you're focusing on that, you really have to neglect uh, all the other stuff. So I, I think I'm gonna try to continue this genre where if I write another novel, I'm gonna to try to find another like really good poem that is a story within a poem and then try to build a novel around it. But I haven't, I haven't found that poem yet. Uh, if uh, you, can, you can forward it to me or any of your <laughs> listeners can forward to me any, any poems they think that would make a, a really good story in novel form, I'm, I'm kind of looking for that. That's it, man. I appreciate you for joining me and, and discussing your books. Where can people get the books from? Uh, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and it's called At the Bat That Strike Out the Shamed, Ameri the Shamed America, but that's it's a hard, difficult title to remember. So I, I kind of looked at this. I looked at, I called up Amazon. If you go to Amazon's site and you type in strikeout, uh, especially in, if you type it, uh, if you call up the book section and you type out strikeout, it's the very first book that comes up in the search. If you just call, uh, type out strikeout just for, through the entire Amazon, uh, I think it's like the third thing that comes up uh, uh, 
with that. So that that's the easiest way to find the book, I think, is to get on Amazon, type strikeout, and you'll see the book. It's uh, it's got a fire. The cover's got a fire uh, of a bunch of bats burning, and it's uh, at the bat, the strikeout that shamed America. I didn't put Casey at the bat in the title okay. because I didn't want people thinking it's a children's book. Uh, I think people there's there, and there are a lot of children's books. Uh, Casey at the bat. I think they're mostly like the actual poem with people's artistic rendition. You know, they're mostly artists that do pictures that go along with the poem. Okay. So if, if you have a, if you have children, those are probably very good, but I didn't want to put Casey at the bat in my book because I have a lot of uh, people looking for children's books, probably looking at my book. And I wanted, it's a, it's a novel and I wouldn't recommend it's got, it's got one kind of a dicey scene, maybe two. So I probably wouldn't recommend it for children that are much older than uh, much younger than 15 or 14. Awesome. I'm looking forward to reading it, man. I, I think that's going to be awesome. I hope I don't have too many similarities to Casey. <laughs> well you, you gotta if you if you keep being successful then you can worry about the the, the star syndrome that, uh, that everybody gets but uh maybe maybe i'll maybe one day i'll have that problem too but so far uh i've been able to stay unsuccessful enough to stay humble <laughs> <laughs> hey we'll, we'll keep playing on the edge when you're repping games keep enjoying life keep telling great stories and and, and like I said, I, I really appreciate you for, for being able to jump on the Lulu Logic podcast with me and and share these stories and talk about baseball, talk about your refing. I, I just find refing is so interesting for a lot of people and even myself because it is a different perspective. Yeah, it is. So, uh, and, they're, thank you. and they're watching a different game too. If you if you have a referee, you'll find out that you're you're watching the game entirely different than you would as a fan. Yes. Coaching is the same way. I coached last year in BC. Um, and as a coach, you can't watch the game. You have to watch for certain things. You have to watch to see what the fronts are, see what the, uh, if your running back does right, see where the blitzes come from. So you're watching a different game. Um, it's not until after the game when you watch it that you actually see the game. Right. Right. So you, yeah. you have to watch it differently to be able to make sure that your guys are doing what's supposed to be done or, um, how we can be better or what's what's going wrong in the game right yeah and so the fans are watching where the ball is and a good coach is watching to where the people off the ball if they are getting in the right place and that kind of thing so they and, and a lot of uh officiating is done off ball too that's why that's why you need more than one official because if you had one basketball official on the floor all they could do is watch the ball and off ball you could see somebody like just smacking somebody <laughs> so and so if they're good officials, the ones that one official is, is the primary official on the ball and they're watching the ball. And if the other officials are doing their job, they're watching off the ball. And so they're not really watching the game. If they're watching off the ball, the fans are watching where the ball is. Yeah. Well, Dale, can you tell them how they can send you the poem or get a hold of you if they have any questions or, or just want to get a hold of you if you have any social media or anything? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. That's where I am. probably find uh, most people. You know, I'm on Facebook, but those are mostly just my close friends. So it's probably harder to get a hold of me on Facebook. Uh, so LinkedIn, you can find me. Uh, and uh, and my email is is uh, Casey, Casey strikes out at gmail.com. There it is. Casey strikes out at gmail.com. Thank you, Dale, for joining the Lulu Logic podcast. And we are out. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.